Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter as we come to our second in this series that Brian began last week. This is found on page 1018, 1018. pretty close to the back there. Begin reading with verse 16 and read through verse 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word. For your glory we pray. Amen. So, how about your quiet time? Uh, Are you getting into God's word? Uh, Do you feel guilty now that I've asked that question? (laughs) Maybe you feel the edges of your frustration over your own inconsistency in getting into God's Word. Do you sometimes, as I do, ever wonder, why don't I get into God's Word? Why won't I get into God's Word? I've actually asked, what is wrong with me that I don't get into God's Word? I suggest that as in everything else in our lives... You don't and you won't because you don't want to, okay? The things you really like, you tend to do. I, I won't have a show of hands, but anybody here watch Downton Abbey? And if so, do you ever miss one? Mm. Do you record the ones that you miss so that you see them later? Yeah. Or we could bring out Mad Men maybe or House of Cards or Shark Tank or Fixer Upper. Um, <clears throat> So, why do we do that? Because we like them so much, right? We just like them. We enjoy it. So, this is disturbing, too, because I know I'm supposed to like the Word of God. I'm supposed to desire it above all else. So, is it just, is it discipline or is it lack of desire? Or maybe it's a little of both. Uh, like losing weight, I may want to be several pounds lighter, but for 20 years, I haven't been, okay? (laughs) You know why? Because I would rather eat than get to that weight. Simple as that. I like food better than getting to that weight. That's the bottom line. So, with dealing with the word, I'm afraid for us many times, that's often 
what it is. I would rather eat what I'm eating, that is, do other things, watch other things, read other things, than to read the Word. It's pretty simple, really. So my discipline is lacking because my desire is ultimately lacking. So in this letter, Peter is calling his readers to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Brian dealt with this in a beginning way in chapter 1 earlier when he speaks of the knowledge of him. That's the knowledge of Christ. And we'll see that this goes on through this whole letter. And the primary reason this is so important, particularly for his hearers, is they're being bombarded by enemies who are denying the promise of the second coming of Christ. And they do so in order that they're... As a result, they can be free to live as they want to. They can live in sensuality and immorality because there's no accountability. There's no coming judgment. Probably influenced by Greek thinking that says, hey, when you die, you die. It's over. You're gone. So what you do in the body, they're not going to have any ramifications for it. And so they, in conforming to the surrounding world, wanted to deny anything that would stand in the way of living out that immoral life. So Peter, in this book, is setting forth the reality of Christ's coming and the critical need to recognize Christ in all his glory and to give ourselves up to his precious promises, to live by those promises, to give ourselves to Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at it in three ways this morning. The promise of Christ's coming in the transfiguration, which is verses 16 through 18. Then the promise of Christ's coming in the prophetic word, which is verses 20 and 21. And then finally, we'll look at the promise of Christ's coming in our daily lives, which is found more in verse 19 in his exhortation at that point. So, the promise of Christ coming in the transfiguration, in the prophetic word, and in our own lives. So, in the promise of Christ coming in the transfiguration, uh, this, he, he begins here by saying, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths, which lets you know that they were being accused of making up stuff about Jesus. Making up all this stuff about Jesus coming again, the end of the world, final judgment, etc., now, as you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and here in Second Peter, you see that the disciples were right there on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured in front of them, and light burst forth from his body and his clothes. And particularly, Peter here is pointing to the voice that spoke at that time. He says it twice, verse, uh, verse 17 and verse uh, 18. So in these two places, he says the voice, it was the voice. The voice then becomes this declaration of honor and glory concerning Jesus Christ. It's important to see that this language is taken from Psalm 2, where God says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So it changes a little bit. Instead of you, it says, this is my son. But in Psalm 2, it's speaking of the son's enthronement and his rule over the nations, okay? 
So Peter is, in emphasizing this voice, is stressing that Christ here is being invested with kingship on the mountain. In fact, this is a preview and anticipation of his final coming in glory as king and judge over all things. That's why Peter introduces it as he does. And it's a little bit puzzling when you read it. He says, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you think he's going to talk about the second coming. But then he talks about the transfiguration. But he calls it. The, the coming, the power and coming probably means the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this shows that he sees this as a prefiguring, kind of a down payment, a guarantee of that coming. It tastes of the same flavor of the powerful coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Coming throughout the New Testament always refers to Christ's Uh, Second coming, when it's used in these kind of contexts. His coming to rescue his people and judge the earth. And so now we have a foretaste and promise of that coming on the mountain when he's transfigured. In a sense, he's being inaugurated at that time as the king who will come. Probably why he uses the phrase, which is not used in others, of the holy mountain. Because in Psalm 2, it refers to, I will place my king on Zion, the holy hill. And so it's probably another reference back to Psalm 2, indicating this is investiture of kingship, right? Investiture of glory and royalty. So though it does reveal Christ's deity, the real point is that this is an installation service, you could say. It was God saying, this is my son, my king, my beloved, my chosen, the one in whom I'm well pleased. And though the disciples really didn't get it until after the resurrection, you can see how this could have and should have encouraged them, even at the death of Christ, to think, okay, Christ has died but he was revealed with glory on the mountain. We're going to count on that. We're going to trust in that. He is the king. He is the glorious king. God showed us that. He taught us that. That was gone in their thinking, apparently. Uh, and, and it was only after the resurrection that they could see all of this and what the transfiguration was declaring about Christ's kingship and his favor with God. So that's the coming of Christ in the transfiguration. But there's the coming of Christ, or the promise of Christ's coming, in the prophetic writings. In verses 20 and 21, he talks about these writings and how they don't come from uh, man, but they come from God. But it's interesting the terminology he uses. As he describes the voice, he uses a particular word saying this voice was born from, that is, carried by the majestic glory. That means it came straight from God, straight from the majestic glory. And in the next verse, it says, it was born from heaven. You see, it was carried straight from heaven. Well, that word actually is used twice in verse 21. For no prophecy was ever carried by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. So he's specifically saying that 
It's not that in the case of the mountain, the voice came from God, but in prophecy, it comes from man. No, just like it came from the voice in heaven, so prophecy comes from God through the Holy Spirit. It's carried by God uh, through the Holy Spirit. So it's just as much the word of God. And so as we think about what the Holy Spirit did to carry these men and enable them to speak from God, we ask this question, what was the main theme of the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit uh, brought about? And as you see the New Testament, you see what it is. John 5, Jesus is saying to the Jewish leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's as though Jesus says, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> that can't be real. That you're really searching for Scripture. How can you say honestly that you're seeking Scripture when Scripture holds forth me, I'm its subject, and yet you reject me? If you reject me, you reject Scripture because I'm what Scripture is all about. And then Luke says of Jesus, after he rose from the dead, met the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And some of you are familiar with what he says. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. So he just goes through the scriptures and unveils all that it said about himself. And later in Luke, it says, he says to the disciples, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All of it, all of this that's, that's chocked full of me, it's all going to be fulfilled. So, since the Holy Spirit in carrying along these prophets, this prophetic word, had as his basic theme the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his suffering, death, resurrection, and final reign, okay, the whole of Christ's work, then this helps us see why he connected the transfiguration with the prophetic word, okay? Now, it reads, not I, I think, along with many commentators, not quite accurately in the ESV. Because he says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. It sounds like he's saying, hey, this is even more sure than what I heard on the mountain. But actually, it should be uh, translated more like this. We have more certain now the prophetic word. You see? The transfiguration has made even more certain all that the prophets have said about Christ. We have more certain now the prophetic word that has proclaimed Messiah all this time. And so because of the transfiguration, especially this voice from heaven, that prophetic word which always pointed to the Redeemer and King is made more sure in what we saw on the mountain. That prophetic word has been fulfilled in Christ. The proclamation that in so many places that a king would be, there there would be this king to redeem his people and judge the nations and rule the world. This was confirmed in what we saw on the mountain, Peter is saying. 
And it reminds me of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 when he's talking about the promises of God. And he says, all the promises of God find their yes in him, that is, in Christ. So all of these promises of the Old Testament, how good are they? Are they reliable? Are they dependable? Are they faithful? Are they real? And he says, in Christ, in the giving of Christ, in the death and resurrection and reign of Christ, they are real. They are yes. Kind of, he uses the phrase a little earlier, amen. You know, you say the amen at the end to confirm this is true, yes. And so he says, all the promises as though God says with Christ, yes. To every promise I've ever made. So in the full revelation of Christ as Redeemer King, not only are the Old Testament prophecies revealed fully for what they are, but now they're made all the more certain by this fulfillment in Christ. The light of Christ has shone in to show the the brilliance and beauty of the Old Testament. Hey, in short, the Old Testament never looked so good. (laughs) It's really sad, therefore, that we've had movements that have largely neglected the Old Testament instead of mining the resources and riches that are there all about the Lord Jesus Christ. So the coming of Christ in the transfiguration, and you've got the coming of Christ proclaimed in a prophetic word, bolstered by that transfiguration. And then the promise of Christ's coming in our daily lives. Notice what he says in verse 19. As he says, we have this uh, more sure, perfect uh, prophetic word now, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Get a feel of that. You would do well to pay attention to this, right? When somebody says that to you, you think, whoa, whoa, is there like, a bridge out or, you know, would I get a disease if I don't? You do well to pay attention to this. This is what Peter is saying. Now, when he says day here, he's obviously speaking of the final day of the Lord when Jesus comes and judges the world. It's interesting that Paul writes in Romans and Thessalonians of the coming of this day. And he says, we are children of the day. Which is a beautiful thought. We're part of that day. We belong to the day. He says, we, in those contexts, we are not of the night. We're not of darkness. So night and darkness, of course, are symbols of uh, hatred and rebellion and evil. And day is a symbol of purity, of praise, of goodness. He says, we belong to the new world of the day. We don't belong to the old world of night. So, even now, as we are in the midst of darkness, the prophetic word, the word of God, is like a lamp that shines in the darkness. And here's the important thing. As we participate in that word, are formed by that word, we're living in the new creation, even now in the midst of darkness. Through the word, we're a part of the day in the midst of darkness. And, of course, as a centerpiece of this lamp, of this prophetic word, is its proclamation about Jesus Christ, revealed in the Old Testament in many different ways and then fully bursting forth in the New Testament. So, 
the knowledge of Christ is this consistent theme in Second Peter. We've already mentioned what he said in chapter 1. Notice in chapter 2, verse 20, he speaks of the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he ends the whole book with this. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, we are to ever deepen our roots in knowing Christ, trusting Christ, adoring Christ, obeying Christ through this prophetic word in the Old Testament and the New Testament until the final day when the lamp will not be needed anymore. Just like you, you may be a dark inner room here, you've got a lamp, it's very important, you can't see anything without the lamp. You go outside in the bright sunshine, no point to have the lamp anymore. Right? And that's the picture here. We have this lamp, and we're connected to the light, and we receive the light until the day comes and breaks in upon us. So as we have this precious word, we will have a tether, okay? A tether to Christ. And, and, it, and, and then this anticipates This experience of Christ here anticipates what he says, that the morning star will rise in your heart. Now, morning star refers to, first, Venus. The actual Greek word is phosphorus, okay, Uh, which means bringer of light because Venus is the brightest thing in the sky besides the moon and the sun. But it, during about 250 days of its cycle, it rises with the sun, it It actually precedes the sun a bit. And so it's called the morning star. But Jesus is referred to this. In Numbers 24, 17, it says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So kingship and star are associated. And in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, the last chapter, Jesus says, I am the root and branch of David, the bright star of the morning. So why, though... Okay, get that. He's, he's the bright morning star. Why does he rise in our heart, though? That's the harder part of this. What does he mean by this? This is a beautiful way of saying that in that day, you will be flooded with the light and luster of Jesus Christ. The morning star won't just be external to you. It will rise in your heart, in a sense, you see. It will take over your life. That outward appearance of Christ, the morning star, will mean a complete transformation for you and me. We will take on the light of Christ. We will become pure and good as Jesus is pure and good. The dawning of that day will mean the dawning of a new and lasting thrill and happiness for you as you are completely purified of all evil. The dawning of the day of Christ means the arise of a whole new life in existence for you and me. The morning star will rise in your hearts. What a beautiful way to put this. And until then, he says, you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, the prophetic word. This, as I said earlier, is your tether to Christ. This is that by which you grow in your knowledge of Christ and your likeness to Christ. You're a child of the day, not of the night. This is your bond to the day. This is your link to the final day when he comes. 
This is your connection to that day. Here's the lamp. The day isn't here. You have the lamp. You do well to pay attention to that lamp. Because that is leading you to the day. And I commend to you afresh, as we do often, of course, this precious word. I think of Deuteronomy 32 where Moses said of the things he had just been speaking. This is no empty word for you, but your very life. Okay? This is just a casual, you take it or leave it kind of word. This is your very life. And this was before the whole history of Israel, the Psalms, the prophets, and the final uh, revelation of Jesus Christ. How much more so can we say, hey, this is your life, this word. Now, if a person's kidneys have failed, dialysis is not an option. It's not an empty, superfluous procedure. Outside of a kidney implant, it's the only hope for life, right? In a sense, then you could say, dialysis is my life if I have to have it. That's the sense in which Moses is speaking here. Peter is saying, until he comes, this word is your life. This is your lamp in the darkness. It is only by the knowledge of Christ that we attain his glory and excellence that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. It's only through the knowledge of Christ. It's only through the knowledge of Christ that we can take on the character traits that he has outlined thus far in chapter 1. And so this way of the knowledge of Christ and conformity to Christ, he says in chapter 1, in verse 11, in this way there will be richly provided you an entrance into the eternal kingdom. You see, the entrance into the eternal kingdom, the participation of the day then, is dependent on God's salvation that causes us to immerse ourselves in the word and to fulfill our knowledge of Christ by taking on the likeness of Christ. It's part of salvation. It's part of our rescue. And so as we pay attention to this word and humbly and prayerfully immerse ourselves in it, we'll more and more bear the light and goodness of Christ until that final day when his full goodness and likeness will dawn in our hearts and lives. You see? By our involvement in the lamp and the knowledge of Christ. And then finally, we will have full knowledge and full conformity. You get this in uh, 1 John 3, just a little bit later in this, uh, the, the next book, I mean. In chapter 3, he says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What an encouragement there, right? That we will see him and become like him. Peter puts it this way, the morning star will dawn in your heart, will rise in your heart, and you will take on the character of Christ. And so... Let's just ask a question or two. I don't know how many of you have had Netflix in the past. Maybe some of you still do. And uh, you remember that you would have a list of DVDs. They call it a queue. I mean, a queue. Right, I used to think for 62 years until I looked it up this week, it was a quay. 
But uh, in case you're as stupid as me, then I'm letting you know that it's a cue. So at least the online dictionary says. So you have this list of movies and you got the most important one up at top so that when you get through with your movie, you send it in, they automatically send you the next one. And it makes sense that you'd have your favorite movie there, right? Well, this question could be asked, where is the Word of God in your spare time queue? Okay? Maybe we look on a queue and say, hey, there's TV, there's movies, there's magazines, there's novels, there's news, there's internet, games, puzzles, gardening, shopping, entertainment, hanging out with friends, etc. None of which is wrong, right? But for some of us, is it like, yeah, let me see where that, the word, um, um, the, you know, it's not in the queue. It's not even in there. Or it's supposedly on the list somewhere because that makes me feel better, but it keeps getting bumped back. <laughs> I never really order the movie. Now, what if it was at the top of the queue in your life? What if it's at the very top of the queue? The thing you most wanted to do. The thing you were eager to do. Kind of like, well, let's ask this question. How many times have you binged on the word? Versus binging on, not necessarily food, but many other things, right? Where I stay up reading a novel till I like lose sleep. Or I, we binge and watch, you know, back, uh, uh, back versions, uh, back seasons, I'm sorry, of Mad Men or something like that. For night after night after night. You get the little feel of what I'm saying. We need to ask that question, don't we? Where's my desire, my passion, my eagerness, my excitement over the Word of God? Now, some of it, of course, can show itself in the way we participate in worship, in small group, in Sunday school, discussion groups, Bible studies. Not that you necessarily go to all of those, but those are right out there ready to help you to get at that Word. As Brian talked about last week, the importance of community and helping us to remember Uh, the things of the gospel. But it should include, of course, what you do alone and in your family. And certainly, this is where it gets tough. This is where a lot of discipline and schedule and organization with children and everything else we have to do. But I still think that one of the main reasons we don't take the time to really work at that is that we're really not motivated. Let me just ask you this. If If someone showed to you, revealed to you, and it was without dispute that there was $50 million buried in your backyard, what would, would you look back there and say, yeah, but yeah, I'd have to tear up the new deck that I put in last, last year. Or would you say, oh, I've got this nice brick sidewalk that walks through. I just, I couldn't tear that up. Not for just $50 million, you know. I mean, even if it was like, a cement patio or maybe your garage is back there, a really nice two-car garage, or let's say four-car garage, okay? It's going, you know, whatever it costs. I'm tearing it up. I'm going to find that $50 million. I would suggest to you that there is amazing, unbelievable, unlimited treasure in the Word of God, treasure of which $50 million is nothing, okay? The treasure of Jesus Christ to be had by you. 
It's, and here's God. He's come to you in the word and he's presenting you, giving you, making available the Lord Jesus Christ for you to be nourished on. And of course, it is difficult. It's very hard, harder for some than others. It's hard for all of us in regard to, even if you like to study, it's hard to to really worship and and be transformed by that word. There's so much in us that resists his word, even now. But if the cure for your daughter's disease was written in Chinese, there was no one who knew Chinese, but you were given a written course on Chinese and a full Chinese dictionary, I'm going to ask any of you ladies, would you just say, meh, too bad, you know, just too much. I I mean, God, me learning Chinese, you got to be kidding, you know. I think you might think, I will do anything to save my daughter. I'll do anything to save my daughter, right? So, do you want, and here's another way to look at it. Do you want that final light of the coming of Christ? Could it be that a measure of your desire for the light of Christ, the day of Christ, could be measured by your desire for the present light that you have in the word of Christ? It's interesting that Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, when he's talking about the crown of righteousness that he will receive, he says, and also for all who have loved his appearing. For those who love his appearing. Or the writer of Hebrews, he's coming to save those that eagerly wait for him. I would suggest that eagerly waiting for him and loving his appearing would be related to eagerly embracing him and his word. Right? Loving the appearance of Christ in the Word. But we speak of grace, right? The new covenant. I I don't want this to be a thing of God standing over here and he's just so frustrated with you and when are you going to get it together and, you know, pull it together and, and start reading the Word. This is God's salvation for us. It's part of his salvation. In the new covenant, he says, I will put my law in your heart. He says, that's in in Jeremiah. In Ezekiel, he says, I will cause you to walk in my ways. Or I love how it's put in Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give them a heart to know that I'm the Lord. I say that's the same thing. To put his law in your heart is to put in your heart the knowledge of God. So this is something he will do for you. This is part of his salvation. I will change your desires. I will form you. I will shape you. I will remold you into a person that loves the word so that you truly love and deepen your relationship with Christ. In talking about the enthronement of Jesus in Psalm 110, it says, Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power, in the day of Christ's resurrection and ascension. Isn't it encouraging that in the day of his power, in the day of his spirit, we can freely offer ourselves to his word, to give ourselves to that word? It's part of his salvation. And remember, this word renovates you and rebuilds you and reconstructs you. It searches you. It discovers you. It reveals your stains and sickness. It cleanses you. It heals you. By the spirit, it makes you good. 
or at least better and better, okay? It is nourishment and light and life. It is protection and warning. It is abundant promise. Therefore, it's hope and peace and joy and comfort and perspective and insight. Don't turn away from that word. Give yourself to the riches of God's word. And because I started uh, maybe four or five times growing up, I would come down front in our church and kind of rededicate myself. But I really didn't know what I was doing. I really didn't trust in Christ. But I rededicate myself, and I think, I'm going to do better now. And I'd go home. I'd start Genesis 1. Bam. Genesis 5, genealogy. Boop. That's <laughs> it. I hit the brick wall of the genealogy every time. I never got past it, right? So just briefly, I would suggest start in the New Testament because it is in the New Testament that you have the beginning light to understand what's in the Old Testament, okay? I really think that. And so start with Luke and Acts. Luke is the most complete of the Gospels. Starts with the birth narratives that kind of familiar to you, all right? Read Acts, the, the life of the church. Then hit some small books like 1 Peter, Ephesians, or Philippians. Then jump to the big one, Romans, okay? Then maybe jump back to John. And all along the way, intersperse Psalms. Learn what, how the psalmist prays. Those are some of the rich, richer places for new believers to get into it. Or believers who've been believers for 40 years but never started reading God's Word. I just encourage you, this Word is your lamp. Pay attention to it until the day comes and the morning light rises in your heart. Let us pray. Lord, we ask you to cause us to have a passion for Jesus that shows itself in so many ways in our lives in which we manifest his love and kindness and goodness. And as part of that, that we will have a passion for this word which sets forth Christ so wonderfully. Bless us to your glory and honor. Amen.